Reach around behind you and grab your Bible and turn to the book of Mark again. We'll stay standing as we read together from Scripture from Mark chapter 8. And we're going to read from verse number 27 all the way down to verse number 38. And it says that Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, saying, John the Baptist and others, Elijah and others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them and saying, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. But what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Father in heaven, this morning as we come before your open word, we pray, O God, that you would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would speak and teach us. Father, that we would have hearts to hear what the Spirit of God would say to us, that we might go from this place changed more into the image of Christ. Father, it is all about Him. It's about His suffering and His death. It's about His triumphant resurrection. It is about the fact that He is ascended to your right hand and He is seated at your side on your throne. And Father, we give you thanks and we rejoice and we worship this morning because He is ruling and reigning on high. And Father, He has called us to discipleship, to a life of being disciples of His. And Father, there is some difficult things in this text that we must confront. Father, we plead with you this morning that you would help us by the power of the Spirit of God to bow the knee to submit ourselves and to commit our lives to living lives of obedience that is pleasing to you. And Father, yet we rejoice. We rejoice, O God, that you have not expected us to do this in our own strength, but you have given us your Holy Spirit to enable us, to empower us, to fill us, to teach us that we might live lives that are pleasing to you. Father, we ask you for help and we give you thanks now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, we have been in Mark chapter 8 for uh, quite a long time. I think it's been at least a couple of months. And this is the last Sunday morning we will spend in Mark chapter 8. And we look at the last of really seven messages on verses 27 to 38. The title of the message, as it has been for the last three messages, is this, that discipleship is all about Christ. 
We took a few weeks to look at the beginning part, which is in verses 27, 28, and 29, and we asked the question, who is Jesus? Who is the Christ? And we answered by saying that He is the Christ, the Spirit-filled Lord, Messiah, and Savior. We answered by saying He is the Christ, the anointed prophet of God, speaking and displaying and expounding the Father to us. He is thirdly the Christ, the anointed priest, the one who offered himself as our substitute, our sacrifice. He gave his blood for us that we might be redeemed, that we might know freedom from a guilty conscience and freedom from sin and death. And fourthly, he is the Christ, the anointed king. We give thanks. We worship this morning because our King is ascended on high. He lives to rule and reign over us. Wow, that got really loud all of a sudden. (laughs) Sorry. Discipleship is all about Christ. And we looked at how it demands four things of us. Number one, it demands the cross of Christ. And we saw eight reasons out of countless reasons why that Jesus had to suffer. He said to them, he told them how it was necessary. He must suffer many things. And with the eight great reasons why Jesus must suffer, I'll run through them quickly. He must suffer to purchase our salvation. He must suffer to display the nature and extent of the love of God. He must suffer to display God's justice and to fulfill the demands of God's justice. He must suffer, fourthly, to display God's triumph over sin and death. He must suffer to to display God's glory in raising Jesus from the dead. He also must suffer to show Christ's obedience and the obedience that God expects of us as disciples. He also must suffer to display the riches of the glory, of the wonder of God's grace. He suffered to show us just the extent of the unimaginable, the matchless, the amazing, the abundant grace of God. There are not enough superlative words in the English language to describe the grace of God. And Jesus on a cross suffered to show us the nature and extent of His grace. He also suffered on a cross to show us and leave us an example of how to suffer when we encounter it. We looked last week at how discipleship demands the mind of Christ and how Jesus was saying to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's interest. And we looked at what is the interest, the mind of Christ. And it was a delight to do the will of God. We looked briefly at the mindset of man. We saw how it was self-first, self-preservation, and self-exaltation. And we looked at seven strategies last Sunday morning in all the heat on how we can develop and have the mind of Christ. And this morning... You got a note sheet there in your in your folder. I want to follow along if you can. Um, discipleship demands the obedience of Christ. That's how we're going to finish up this chapter, looking at what Christ demands of us as disciples to be obedient to His Word. There's four points I want to get through this morning, if we can. Discipleship demands a believing obedience. Faith and obedience are tied together. They cannot be separated. Discipleship demands a God-centered obedience, not a man-centered one. Discipleship demands a dying obedience. I don't mean the obedience that fades away to nothing. I mean a different kind of obedience, a dying obedience. 
Fourthly, discipleship demands a costly obedience. And we're going to see all these things. And in conclusion, we're going to wrap it all up and say and talk about the grace of God in discipleship. Well, the question might have come up in your minds. I know it came up in mine all through this week. I've been thinking about this one question. What does it mean to be a disciple? Now, you might think, you've been preaching on this for the last three weeks. Surely by now you've figured out what it means to be a disciple. But I started wondering and questioning, what does it mean to be a disciple? I did a little research, and this is what I came up with. A disciple is a student, a learner, a pupil, one who learns from another. A disciple is one who seeks out or is sought out by a teacher that he might come alongside, come behind him, and learn the principles that teacher has to teach. A disciple is one who submits himself to the discipline and the instruction of the master and the teacher. We are called to be disciples of Jesus Christ. We don't use that word much anymore. We use the word Christian, or we use the word believer or follower. But we are called biblically to be disciples of Christ. And a disciple is one who submits himself under the instruction and the teaching of his master. And finally, a disciple is one who adheres to the teaching that he receives. Jesus, we see from the Scriptures in John 15, verse 16, He chose us. That's a wonderful, remarkable truth. Jesus chose us to be His disciples. He looked at them and said, You did not choose me, but I chose you. Jesus has chosen us. He's also called and appointed His disciples in Mark 3, verse 13 and 19. He calls the disciples up onto the mountain and He looks at this great big crowd of them and He selects and calls and appoints 12 of those men to be with Him. Thirdly, Jesus was given the disciples. They were a gift of the Father to the Son. And you and I as disciples in Jesus Christ, that's the same is true for us. We have been called to be disciples. We have been chosen by Jesus. We've been appointed to be disciples, to be with Jesus. And we're also given as a gift of the Father to the Son. Here they are. It's kind of like uh, we keep watching these royal movies. We're watching the one about Victoria right now. And uh, when she becomes queen, she's 18 years of age. And it's decreed by the government and the tradition of royalty that she is given ladies-in-waiting. They're her appointed friends. And they come and they gather around her. And everywhere she goes, they go along with her and they kind of advise her. One dresses her, one looks after her clothes, and I don't know, one chases the dog or something. They're all there for her care and keeping. And it's almost like the father looks at the son and says, you need companions to be with you. And just as those ladies-in-waiting became Victoria's closest friends and allies, and she refused to give them up, even when the government changed, so also Jesus has been given us as His companions to be with Him, to learn from Him, to walk with Him, to follow Him, and to imitate His example. We are a gift of the Father to the Son. Well, you may be wondering, why is it we're going through this message? Why are we spending so much time on this passage and this chapter and the issue and the topic of discipleship? And here's the problem that I've noticed and I've talked to different Christians and different ones I've met throughout my walk around this time, this place, and in Canada and so on. It comes up again and again that the idea of Christianity has developed into something like belief without obedience. We just believe in Jesus and everything will be okay. Don't worry about all those commands. Just It's a simple belief. 
I've heard described as the simple gospel. Don't worry about repentance. Don't worry about reformation of character. Don't worry about obedience. You just believe and everything will be okay. That's heresy, by the way. That is what Paul describes in Galatians 1 as another gospel. It is not the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ. It is not the gospel of the Scriptures. The problem of confession without a cross. The problem of discipleship without cost, without change of life, without anything being laid on me that I need to submit myself and obey. Yes, a thousand times, yes, we are saved by grace through faith. Never change that. But we are not saved by faith through grace in order to stay exactly the way we used to be. We've been saved. We've been called out of one life and we have been called into another. It's like you're going down the road in one direction and the Lord Jesus makes a great call on your life to discipleship and belief and you make a massive U-turn and you go exactly the other way. You go completely countercultural to everything you've known and seen. It's a radical change of life that we have been called to. Now wonder sometimes if our effectiveness in preaching the gospel is greatly hindered because we don't live a different life than everybody else. In fact, we look just like everybody else. And I'm not sitting here going, you, 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 you. Every time I go, you, there's three fingers at least pointing back at me going, no, me. I struggle with this. I struggle with the temptation to be like everybody else, to blend into the crowd of the world that walks around us and is largely ignorant of us. But Jesus has called us to be totally and radically different in this world. We are to be little Christs, showing Him to the world around us. How are they going to see us if they don't see the change of life that He has called us to? Well, I want to give you four things this morning. I mentioned discipleship as a believing obedience, a God-centered obedience, and so on. So number one, discipleship to Christ demands a believing obedience. Notice the text in Mark 8 and verse 34. He says this. He summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me. Now what's happened in the text is Jesus has been talking to his disciples and Peter took him aside and he begins to tell him off. He literally rebukes Jesus for saying things about the necessity of his suffering and death. And Jesus, if you like, sees Peter and he turns around. He sees all the disciples standing behind Peter and he's afraid lest they all follow Peter's heresy and buy into what Peter's saying. And he issues the most harsh rebuke in all of Scripture that Jesus ever makes. Get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on God's things, but man's things. And he tells Peter off in the most powerful terms. And what he is doing is, he is gathering them again. Sorry, then he takes all the disciples and he gathers the crowd too. It's kind of like he stops and goes, wait a minute. Disciples, come here. Y'all come, crowd, great big crowd behind you. All gather around me. Now listen. If anyone wants to come after me, and what he's doing is he's taking the same call that he has put on their life back in Mark chapter 1, and he is expanding it, and he is defining it down. He said, I've made a call on your life. I've called you to follow me and be my disciple. Now, if you're going to obey that call, here is what is expected. 
Jesus makes an authoritative call to them to be his disciples. And now he's defining it and expanding it. And what he is mixing together in that come after me are two things that cannot be divorced. They cannot be separated. He's mixing faith and obedience together. And you say, how does that work? And how, I don't see that in the text. Come after me. That call is a call that demands both faith and obedience for it to happen the way it's supposed to. I'll give you an illustration. Take your Bibles, look at Mark chapter, no, Matthew 14. Flip back a couple pages in your Bible, Matthew chapter 14. It's a great scene. We looked at a similar one in Mark when Jesus comes walking across the water, but Matthew adds a little bit extra to the story. He says this in Matthew 14, 26 through 29. Uh, When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take courage, it is I. In the Hebrew, it's the word I am. Okay, that's a very powerful statement. He's claiming to be God. Do not be afraid. And Peter speaks up. Verse 28, Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said to him, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. Peter sees him coming. And he calls across the water, Lord, if it's really you, bid me to come to you. And Jesus just says one word, come. And now there's a great dilemma in Peter's mind. Wait a minute. He's on the side of the boat and you can almost see the boats going up and down. The wind and waves are still rocking and rolling and Jesus is way up there on the water and he's looking over the edge of the boat and he sees the water and the waves. But he looks at Jesus and now he must make a decision. In order for him to come to Jesus, he must believe that Jesus is who he said he is. In order for him to come and obey, he must believe. In order to believe, he must obey. He can't do what He can't say, okay, I believe you're him. And stay in the boat because he said, if you are Jesus, call me to come. And Jesus has said, come. So he can't obey by staying in the boat, nor can he trust by staying in the boat. So he's got this great dilemma. What am I going to do now? And he gets up and he steps over the side of the boat and his first foot hits the water and the water holds him up and he begins to walk. And he is experiencing at the same time, both faith and obedience. They're tied together. When Jesus says to us, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It requires both faith and obedience because in obedience, I move towards Christ and I trust that he's going to keep his promise and give me that rest that he's promising. But it requires obedience. So it's a believing obedience that we must have and disciples are required to have. It cannot be belief without obedience and it cannot be obedience without belief. The two of them must go together. What a great book to read. I bought this one uh, probably 25 years ago uh, when I first became a believer. It's uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, If anything about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was uh, one of Hitler's last assignments of execution was Dietrich Bonhoeffer's execution in Germany. Uh, He wrote the book probably in the 20s. I bought it in my 20s and tried to read it. And I I don't read German translated into English. I don't know if you know about German writers, but German writers believe that if you can say something in 500 words, why would you ever want to say it in 50 words? So it's very awkward and complex. 
but I was reading it this week after I preached last Sunday, and I was just so excited because Dietrich Bonhoeffer agreed with me, or more likely I agree with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but he just said it so much better. And what he said was this. He said, listen, only the obedient truly believe and only the believer truly obeys. You cannot take those two things apart. For a disciple, it is impossible to obey without true belief. For a disciple, it's impossible to truly believe without obedience. Jesus commands us to come. He commanded His disciples to come. He's saying, if any of you would come after Me, if you're going to exercise that faith and obedience, it's got to be the two put together. Discipleship is... You may have heard this term about 10 years ago, a lordship salvation issue. What does that mean? Jesus cannot be your Savior now and your Lord later. That does not work. It is not a biblical thing. Jesus is both Lord and Savior immediately. When I come to Him for salvation, I am submitting myself to Him as my Lord, my King, my Master, my Teacher. It's a submission issue. It requires both believing and trusting in Him. Paul said it like this in Romans 1 verse 5, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Meaning what? The obedience that comes out of faith or the faith that comes out of obedience? And the answer is yes, both. It works together. Obedience and faith are tied together. It's like faith and repentance in the two sides of the same coin. You can't take one without the other. They must go together. And Jesus is calling us to a believing and an obedient lifestyle. James said it like this in James 2.26. Faith without works is dead. Faith was working with His works in James 2 and verse 22. So faith and works go together. They cannot be divorced. Yes, we're saved by faith through grace. Or sorry, by, we're saved by grace through faith. Faith is the channel which we receive God's blessing of grace. But we are saved to be obedient. The call to faith is a call to be obedient. You can't take them apart. Discipleship demands believing obedience. And we keep saying how the message is discipleship is all about Christ. Well, you know what? The Lord Jesus set us the perfect example The Bible describes in 1 Peter how Jesus went to the cross. His going to the cross was an obedient suffering at the will of His Father. And as He went, what did He do? The Bible says He entrusted Himself to Him who judges justly. What's that mean? He obeyed and He trusted and they were together. And Jesus is calling us as His disciples to the very same life. It's an obedient life. What is God calling you to do? You're reading through your Bible. I'm so glad to hear some of you are reading through your Bible on a regular basis. I don't think you're the only one who, by the way, who started in January last year and it's just not quite finished yet. It doesn't matter. Keep going. Keep reading. But as, excuse me, you're reading your Bible and you hit those points and the Spirit of God begins to take the Word of God that you're reading and poke you with it. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. And say, you need to do this. Let me ask you the hard question. Did you do it? Maybe the Spirit of God has taken a Scripture you're reading and has laid something on your conscience about that Scripture. Have you stopped doing 
what it is that God has called you to do. This life is a life of obedience that we are called to do. It's not an optional obedience. It's a quick, smart obedience. One of the ways that we show and display our faith in the living God is by the way in which we obey His call on our lives. He's calling us to an obedience. It's a faithful, believing obedience. Second thing is this. Discipleship demands a God-centered obedience. Notice what the text says in verse 34 again. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Now the phrase must in there, the little word, in the Greek, it's actually attached to all those commands. It's part of the same word. So the same emphasis goes all the way through. He must deny himself. He must take up his cross. And he must come after me. Well, first of all, he's talking about self-denial. And you say, what does self-denial mean? There's all kinds of ideas out there, like Greek ascetics used to think about ways to deprive the human body as a way of denying yourself. So they would go for days without eating, or as long as possible without water, or they would inflict some kind of pain themselves, or maybe they would crawl on their hands and knees over broken glass to do something. It was to deny themselves certain pleasures and enjoyments. But it was all very self-focused and all pointed toward themselves. The biblical idea of self-denial is different. It's not a Greek ascetic philosophy. Uh, Biblical self-denial means to put and place your own interests and objectives aside and you look to God's interests and the interests of others first. You're denying yourself that first place in your life. It's obedience again. Instead of me choosing how I'm going to go and how I'm going to live, I'm submitting myself to Christ and saying, how will you have me to live? Where would you have me to go? What would you have me to do? Now, last week we talked about the dangers of the man-centered life, the man-centered mindset, self-preservation, self-exaltation, so on. Jesus, in calling us to self-denial, is calling us to something infinitely harder than that ascetic life. He's calling us to a radical shift in our priorities, our interests, and our attitudes. You ever read a a story or a passage in Scripture, and you kind of get an idea in your mind about what it's about, and you've read it so many times, every time you come across it, you just go, oh yeah, it's about this, and you just kind of, your eyes kind of glaze over a little bit, and you, you waft across the words, and go to the next passage and keep reading. Take your Bibles and go to Philippians 2 for a sec. Philippians 2 is a great, a famous passage. It's actually more likely a hymn that was sung by the early church. And I had this idea in my mind about what this pastor was really talking about for a long time. And I remember walking down the aisleway of a church. I was leaving my seat in the back. I was coming up the front to preach a message. I had preached all weekend at a youth conference, and I was preaching at the main church for the Sunday. And halfway down the aisle, and no joke, I might have been just passing the communion table, and all of a sudden it hit me. You missed the point of the passage. That's not what it's saying. This is what the passage was, uh, Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. It says this, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed, existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What's his main point? You know what it is? It doesn't start in verse 6. It starts in verse 5. His main point is, have this attitude in yourselves. That's what he's saying. And it's the same idea here of a God-centered obedience. It's have the same mind that Christ did. Have the same attitude. And think about what Christ did. The Bible says he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does that mean? It literally means he did not regard his deity as something he had to hang on to with a tight grasp for fear of losing it. There's no way his deity can be taken from him. And Paul is saying, listen, Christian, you have the same attitude that Christ had. We are called to a self-denying, God-centered lifestyle. We're to have the same attitude that Christ had. We're to go from self-gratifying to being totally satisfied in God. How much of our life is spent trying to please ourselves? Trying to get something, trying to look after my own needs and my own desires. I was noting that, you probably all noticed this before, but I've noticed this week how often I eat. It's okay, you can slough, it's all right. And I was like, man, how, and you know, I, I'd be sitting at my desk, I'm studying away, thinking, oh, I need a cup of coffee. Well, while I'm down there, I may as well grab myself a cookie and, and you know, a sandwich and something else while I'm there. And I go back and I finish the cup of coffee. I need some more coffee. While I'm down there, I may as well grab, and I just, it's, it, it's frightened me. This is bad. This is really bad. And all of a sudden I realized how much of my time is spent trying to satisfy and gratify the desires of my flesh. And when we go to a self-denial lifestyle, you know what it is? It's instead of finding my satisfaction, my gratification in myself, I go to finding it in God. Psalm 23, verses 1. You know what it says? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. What's he saying? He's saying that God is my shepherd. He's the most important person in my entire life. He is my life. And because I have Him, I don't want for anything else. All my satisfaction, all my joy, all my delight is found entirely in Him. And Jesus is calling us to a discipleship that's a self-denying discipleship that puts aside my interests, my desires, my whatever. Little babies, right? They're born. Tash and Joe are going to figure this out in a couple of months. They're born with one goal in mind, one person in mind. Me. Feed me. Change me. Pick me up. Play with me. Put me down. Hold me. Let go of me. Look at me. Don't look at me. Me, myself, and I. Me, me, me. That's what a baby's whole life is, is driven by, that idea. But the real reason is this. Listen. When we become born again as new believers in Christ, it's a radical shift from being me, me, me to being Christ, 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 and others, others, others. It's a God-centered lifestyle. Discipleship is all about Christ. It's having His mind. It's having His example and imitating it. Discipleship is all about Christ, a God-centered obedience. What do you say? What's the two greatest commandments in all the Bible? Love. The Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Why does he give those two things? 
Because in loving God and loving my neighbors, my family, my friend, and even my enemies, I am displaying that God-centered lifestyle, that self-denying lifestyle. I'm fulfilling it. Can you just take one thing? Love the Lord your God with all your... And you can take heart, soul, mind, or strength. I'll take strength. You imagine the difference in this world if disciples of Jesus Christ lived to love the Lord their God with all their strength. Can you imagine the difference? That's a self-denying lifestyle. That's what it means to deny yourself. Listen, again, I'll ask you the question, what has God called you to do in obedience to Him? Stop and think through your week and think through the things that you've read. Stop and think through the conversations that you have had with the Lord as in prayer. And when the Scriptures open in front of you, you've conversed. And He has spoken through His Word. He has spoken and laid things on your heart and your conscience, and you have spoken to Him in prayer. What is God calling you to do in obedience to Him? Look, it's not just obedience and coming and being saved. It's a whole life of ongoing obedience before Him. What has God laid on your conscience? What relationships require your confession or your apology, your reconciliation to put them right? Obedience to all that will show your self-denial and God and a God-centered life. Listen, God is calling us to a radically different life. There's something wrong with the Christian church when we look like, sound like, talk like, everything like the world. Jesus called us no longer to be a part of the world. We're in it but we're not to be a product of its thinking. And this is so radically different than the world's thinking. That's why Jesus is calling us to it, that we might display God to the world around us. Thirdly, discipleship demands a dying or a deathly obedience. Notice in the text again, he says in verse number 34, um, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. First of all, dying means obedience. It doesn't mean that the obedience just fades out and goes away. It's a dying, it's a living death. Notice for the 12 disciples, it clearly meant execution. To them, a cross wasn't something you wear around your neck or you put on a bumper sticker or you put on a cool t-shirt with all that decorative and the, the Celtic look or the Gothic look or whatever you want to use. And we use a cross in artwork all over the place. To, to them, that would be like us taking a hangman's noose and, and using it for artwork or taking an electric chair and putting on a chain around your neck, a little miniature one. It was totally different. To them, the cross meant a death, an inhumane, an unclinical, a painful, a lingering, mocking, scornful, ridicule, ridicule incurring, not ridiculous, I didn't want to say that, a ridicule incurring death. It was horrible. And when Jesus started talking about that, I can see Peter's reaction. I can understand Peter's reaction. You want to come after me? Sit on an electric chair. And pull a switch. That's what he was saying to them. And you say, but okay, that's great. What is he really calling us to? And the answer is he is calling them and us to the same level of commitment that he gave. He was willing to be obedient to his father all the way to death, even death on a cross. The most horrific way man has ever devised for another man to die. 
He was calling us. He is still calling us to the same level of commitment. Crucifixion is a form of death that no longer applies to us, but he is calling us and commanding us to take up the cross in a couple of different ways, symbolically. Okay, when we take up our cross, we're dying to sin, we're dying to self, and we're dying to the world. And it's the idea, by the way, of a repetitive thing. Every day we go to where the crosses are kept, and we pick up our cross, and we shoulder it like a big, shoulder, like a big beam over our shoulder, and we carry that cross through the day. And we're willing to die to sin. Paul talked in Romans 6 about how, how shall we who have died to sin live any longer in it? To take up our cross as believers is to put away sin, to have nothing more to do with it. It's to what Paul calls reckoning ourselves as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The obedience that we are called to is a deathly obedience. Dying to self, dying to sin, dying to the world. It's also something a little bit different too. It's the idea that every single one of us who chooses in obedience and faith to follow Christ, there is a particular, specific, individual cross that we will all bear as a result of that. By the way, I am not talking about sickness, health issues, financial issues. I'm talking about a cross to bear that is a direct correlation to your confession of Jesus Christ. The last point we'll get to in a second is the fact that following Christ, being a disciple of Christ, it will cost us something. And Jesus was standing there with the disciples and all those people spread out in front of him and saying, listen, if you're going to come after me, you need to understand that I'm calling you to pick up a cross and follow me. It's going to cost you a death. We who once were dead in sin have been made dead to sin. We who once were dead to God have now been made alive to God. He is calling us and saying, listen, I want you to follow me. I want you to live a life that's dead to sin, is dead to the world, no longer having the world's interests, the world's desires, the world's ambitions and goals and objectives as our own. I want you to be totally different. In fact, if you cannot be like that, you cannot be my disciple. I wrestled yesterday afternoon, Luke 14, 26 and 27. If he does not do these things, he cannot be my disciple. It's not easy gospel preaching. It's not easy gospel to follow. And some of these words of Jesus are so hard to get your head around. And I was walking around, we were getting ready to go away, I was packing up stuff and doing bits and pieces around the house and thinking, what does it mean? Lord, I'm so far removed from first century Jerusalem and Judea and Galilee. I don't look like them. You're not walking out in front of me. I'm not following along behind you. It's totally different, but yet you're calling me. You're calling this church to be disciples of Jesus Christ. What does it mean? It means that we die to sin. How many of us have a sin that we keep in our back pocket for just such an emergency? Oh, well, you know, I just, I'm going to commit my life, but I don't want to be a radical, so I'll just keep something back for myself. How many of us keep a thought life that does not please the Lord, but we think, well, nobody else can see it. Nobody else knows about it. Nobody else will worry about it. It's just my little thing. 
Listen, Jesus is calling us to a discipleship that's a discipleship that dies daily. It's Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you offer your bodies a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable to Him, which is your reasonable service of worship. It's a daily dying to sin and living to God. What's God calling you to die to? What's God calling me to die to? We've all got our pet things, don't we? That we want to keep. What public stand for Christ and the gospel is Christ calling you and I to make? The idea of the cross isn't just death, it's shame too. I'm telling you right now, you say, oh, I don't know about that, man. That, that's, that's pretty hard. I'm standing right beside you going, yeah, you're right. That is pretty hard. I'm, I, I, you know, I, I, there's a piece of me that pulls back. But as God has worked on my heart, I plead with you and I plead for God to keep working on both of our hearts that we would see the absolute necessity of dying to these things to follow Christ. You say, you're making Christianity an awfully difficult thing. You know what Jesus said? There is a narrow way that leads to life and there are few that find it. Why did he say that? Why why did he just make it so easy so we could all get in? And the answer, like I said to you at the very beginning, the, the key to understanding and knowing what the Christian life is all about, it's all found in the cross. It's all found by staring at the cross and what Jesus suffered and what he endured, the life that he gave up, and yet the triumphant resurrection that happened three days later. The whole key to knowing how we're going to live this life to deal with tough stuff like this, and it's tough. Is found the cross and seeing what Jesus did and seeing how Jesus suffered and died for us. Obedience requires death to self. It's when I put myself, my interests, and my desires aside and I said I will voluntarily, I will submit to God's desires and God's interests and God's goals for my life. Is death to sin. The last one is this. Discipleship demands a costly obedience. It's not just a believing obedience. It's not just a God-centered obedience. It's not just a dying obedience. It's a costly obedience. Notice what he says in verses 34 to 36. He says this. He summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. It's a costly obedience. We must deny ourselves. We must take up our cross. We must follow him. And then we must realize that the desire to save our lives and preserve our lives and build up and exalt our lives will result in this thing. We'll lose them. It's a tremendous warning, but it also comes with a great promise that losing our lives for his sake and the gospels will know what it means to save it. 
The costly obedience is losing a life of materialism. The greatest plague that Satan ever inflicted on the church is the fact that it got wealthy one day. I was uh, thinking again, I saw a, a mail thing in our mailbox from uh, Jim and uh, Gillette's. I can't remember what Jim's wife's name, but anyway, Jim, Jean, that's right, Jim and Jean Gillette. And him telling me the story about how he was in Uganda and he was invited to preach at a conference and he went out and he stood out there in 130 degree heat and they had a little respect for him because he had white skin and he might burn his. They put a little roof over him and everybody else sat out in the sun in 130 degrees, dry, hot day. And he stood up there and he began to preach and he preached and preached and preached and he preached and he preached for two and three quarter hours. I don't, I don't think I could do that, honestly. But two and three quarter hours, and he finally got out. He said he was standing in a pool of his own sweat. It was so hot. He was absolutely exhausted. He sat down the edge of this little platform they had there. And a woman who was sitting out in the sun and, and leaned over and he said, excuse me. Yes. Why did you stop? <laughs> two and three quarter hours. I mean, you know, that's, that's all I got. And he, she goes, I walked for hours in the heat to come and hear God's word. I expect at least three hours. You know what the difference between us and them is? They got nothing. They got nothing but Christ. And so every chance they get to hear something of Christ, they're going to give up whatever it takes to get it. And listen, the life that we have is so wealthy. To, to them in, in their world, coming here and looking at us and our world, it would, just, it would blow their minds out of their heads. They couldn't imagine such wealth. Discipleship will cost us something. It will cost us our wealth. It may cost you your wealth and your temporal things. But you know what? It will gain us an eternal glory with Christ. Discipleship may cost you your physical family, but it will gain you the family of God, blood relatives. Listen, the call to discipleship isn't just a call to go out completely by yourself, all on your own. We're called as part of a company of people. And the great thing I love about coming to church every Sunday morning is seeing all my brothers and sisters in Christ. And we are blood brothers. Because the blood of Jesus binds us together. It may cost us our family. It may cost you your career and your temporal gain and prosperity. But let me ask you the question, what's the point of gaining the whole world and then leaving it in a will to your son or your daughter to squander because you're going off without it? And that was Jesus' point. What shall gain a man if he profits the whole world? What's the profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul in the process? Jesus is calling us to a costly obedience. It will cost us something. But listen to what we will gain. Listen for a second. It will gain us an infinite wealth of pleasures at God's right hand. Psalm 16 and verse 11 talks about the pleasures of God that we will know as we stand in His presence. The human mind can't even begin to comprehend that at this point. And one day we'll stand there and eternity will begin and we'll discover a sudden shock. We'll never grasp all the full measure of the pleasures of God that are ours that He's giving us to us. It will gain us an insurmountable, unfading joy in God. 
You think new house, new car, new boat, new junk is going to give you more joy? Drive around some of the richest properties in this city and look at their lives. Divorce, adultery, incense, incest, murder, etc., etc., etc. They don't have they're not happy. They have no joy, no lasting joy. But a call to walk and be with God will give us an insurmountable joy. It will gain us an audience with the King of Kings for all of eternity. It will gain us an entrance into the greatest choir of all. I can't wait to get to heaven for one reason among many. I can't sing very good now. But I'm looking forward to the day when I stand with the choir of choirs. And we begin to sing the greatest song of all, the greatest theme of all the ages, the glory of the riches of God's grace. It's a costly discipleship. It's going to cost you something. It's something that you're going to have to come to terms with. I was watching um, one evening this week. I think my dad was still here. And we were watching uh, William Wallace, Braveheart, the movie. They got to that great scene which before he's about to be uh, tortured and killed. And he says this, and I thought, how interesting that he said, I, I found out afterwards that William Wallace, the real guy, was actually a Christian uh, in Scotland. He said, all men die, not all men truly live. Remember that, that line? Listen, to live for Christ is to be willing to die for Christ. What I was getting to with that point about all men die, not all men truly live, is that around us, this world is dead to God. And they're all dying in their sin. All men die, not all men truly live. The call to discipleship is a costly call, but it's a call to come and live for Christ. To live for Christ is to be willing to die for Christ. Dying for Christ means that we will know the essence of life. In the Greek language, there's two words that are used for life. One's bios, which we get our word biology from. The other word is the word zoe. And Jesus is never described with the word bios, just existence. He's always described as with the word zoe, meaning the absolute richness and essence of a life. Listen, the call to discipleship is a call to come and die with Christ, to die for Christ, but it's also a call to come and live. To live with Christ. Remember the scene in the uh, uh, book of Ezekiel, I think it is. And Ezekiel walks out and there's this great big valley of bones in front of him, dry bones. And the Lord says to Ezekiel, Son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel, the wise prophet, looks at the Lord or he speaks to the Lord and says, Lord, you know. And God says to Ezekiel, prophesy to these bones, son of man. And Ezekiel begins to preach the word of God to the dry bones. And a funny thing happened. The bones began to rattle and move and began to join themselves together. And before you know it, there was a whole army of skeletons in front of him. And he kept on preaching. And the skeletons had flesh and blood back on them. Every single time we stand up and we preach the Word of God, it is preaching as if to dry bones. And when we preach the Word of God and we plead with men to come and die with Christ, we are calling that which is dead to life, to live. My call to all of us, not just to you, but to me too, is this. Come after Christ. Come and follow Christ. Trust Him completely. Trust Him that He will enable you to grow and and live. 
Trust Him entirely. Obey Him who gave Himself for you. He's calling you to something. Unless there's something terribly wrong with your relationship with God, God is calling all of us to something, to some form of obedience. That's this life. We haven't stopped walking to stand there and just kind of exist with Christ. We're called in a walking, journeying relationship with Christ. And God has put something in your path. He has put something before you and He is calling you to some form of obedience. The question will stand, what will you do about that call? Come and follow Christ. Trust Him completely. Obey Him fully. Deny yourself and live for God. Take up your cross and be willing to die for Him. Live for Christ. There's a verse I love years ago. It was when the Lord began to really get a hold of me when I was a teenager. And uh, I was in a, a church meeting like this, and an old brethren, actually he wasn't that old, his name was Jonathan Brower, and he was preaching on Philippians 3. And he preached on the one phrase, that I may know Him. You know what Paul Paul said in that verse 10? He says this, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. That's exactly what we're talking about. Early in the passage, he talked about how he had everything as a young man. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a, uh, a Pharisee, and so on. He kept the law blamelessly, all these things. He said, everything that made me something, I count it as dung. And he uses a very crude word in Greek to describe that. Human refuse in comparison with the surpassing excellency of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And he finishes up, that I may know Him. The power of of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, and being conformed to His death. That's what Christ is calling us to. But it's a tremendous grace that He is calling us. He's calling us from a life in the world, and He is calling us to a life of obedience and joy and blessing with Him. What will you do about it? What are you going to do? At the end of the day, that's the choice that's left before you. What will you do with Jesus Christ? Would you stand with me? We're going to sing. I think we'll just dispense with the last song for sake of time. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Loving Father, we give you thanks again for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, He has placed a call on our lives that is so great. It's overwhelming. But Father, we give you thanks that He has given us and filled us and blessed us with His Holy Spirit, Your Holy Spirit. Father, we give You thanks that You have given us the Word of God and You have given us fellow believers to walk this road with us. But Father, You have called us to a life of obedience. Father, we rejoice, we give You thanks, we worship You, O God, this morning that we are saved by grace and through faith. Oh, Father, we realize afresh that we have been saved to be obedient to Your Word and to Your will. Father, I don't know the hearts of all that are standing here. I know my own, Lord, a little bit. But Father, You know the heart of every single person in this room. 
And Father, as we stand together with our heads bowed, Father, I plead with you that the Spirit of God would have freedom to work in every person's heart. Father, that you would impress upon them their need to either come to know you for the very first time or their need to put right sin and disobedience that has been left in their lives. Father God, I plead with you that you would do a great work in this church. Father, we have been praying about revival for over a year now. And Father, we realize that revival comes when men and women who claim to be Christians get their lives right with God and renew their commitment to live by faith, to live in obedience, to live glorifying you. Father, we plead with you that you would help us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to live for Jesus, to follow him wherever he leads. Father, some of us have difficult decisions to make to understand and discern your call and your leading in in our lives. Father, we plead with you that you would give wisdom and give grace. Father, help us to see the way that you are leading. And Father, help us with immediacy and submission and a joyful heart to step out in following you. Father, we ask you for your blessing and we give you thanks again in Jesus' name. Amen.